As more doctors, hospitals, and family members come forward to describe what they see as a new pattern of life-threatening inflammatory disease in children, it's really starting to bend the previously held perception that children do not get very sick from COVID-19. So basically, by construction, every single person presents the, the virus a little bit differently to its own immune system. And the whole, the, the dogma, the kind of evolutionary theory behind this is it's to protect our population against complete annihilation from a virus. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I am bio. In today's politics, it's fair to say there's too much us versus them. But when it comes to the cells in our bodies, what often protects us from disease is their ability to distinguish ours versus theirs. That is, self versus not self. Our body's immune system has evolved over millions of years quickly identify invasive viruses and bacteria as not us and swarm them with killer cells. The immune system literally diagnoses and treats viruses, and some of us more successfully than in others. The diversity of the adaptive immune system gives us the ability to detect and respond to millions of disease-causing antigens. When a T-cell finds its target, it binds and multiplies and finds multiple places to target its attack. At the same time, it directs your B-cells to develop antibodies. When the battle is over, some of those T-cells and B-cells stick around so your immune system can respond more quickly if the intruder returns. We can only read the genetic code of these T-cells that initiate the immune response. We could read the unique story of every disease our immune system has ever encountered. And we would have our eureka moment in the research to understand and conquer the novel coronavirus. Why do some healthy people who get infected with COVID have no symptoms while others end up on respirators? Why are most kids immune, but a few have strokes? You're about to meet a biotech trailblazer working on technology that can answer these questions and potentially discover the key to unlock and end this pandemic. My guest today is Dr. Harlan Robbins. He's the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Adaptive Biotechnologies. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Physics from Harvard University and a Master's Degree and PhD in Physics from the University of California, Berkeley. He received postdoctoral appointments in the Particle Theory Group at the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel and at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. So we have, as a guest today, yet another really smart guy. Welcome, Dr. Robbins. Thank you, Jim. Glad to be here. What does that actually mean to improve people's lives by translating the scale and precision of their adaptive immune systems, et cetera? So your immune system is this unbelievable system that's been evolved over many, many millions of years to detect and then protect your body against uh, just about any disease that you might uh, incur. And so instead of 
trying to detect disease directly or come up with small molecules that attack disease, we let the immune system tell us what it sees, right? If we could just learn to read the immune system and decode its own language, we would be able to detect just about anything. Plus, your immune system is fantastic at treating disease. Um, obviously, sometimes the disease beats the immune system, but the vast majority of times it does a really good job. And so if we could just harness what the uh, um, immune system is able to do to treat disease, we would have much better treatments uh, across the board. So that's really what we're doing. We're just taking what evolution has, has created in our own immune system and turning that into uh, clinical products to, to help um, improve diagnostics and treatment for different diseases. You've been able to read the genetic code of the immune system, and, and the antibodies, and say, oh, um, now that we see what the immune system has wrought, uh, we know what you've got. Is that kind of it? My colleagues and I at, at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, back when I was um, an academic, created a technology to to really read the genetics of the of the adaptive immune system at scale. Over ten years ago, I gave a talk completely randomly at at Scripps in uh, San Diego. I only went to this conference because it was February and it was raining in Seattle, so I was like, oh, I'll go to hang out in San Diego <laughs> where it's bright as as any reason. Yeah, and, um, and then it was on a somewhat random subject for me. So I talked about our technology and then people said, hey, could, could just listed 20 different things that they asked if I could use my technology to help them um, understand uh, in terms of uh, what the immune system was actually doing. I was using all the sequencing capacity of the entire hutch already in my own lab. So I couldn't actually do any extra work. So I said... Uh, I called my brother, who is a, a business person at his his M, at his MBA from Wharton, and I said, "Hey, I think we have a technology here that can turn into a company, and we could use it to to really detect and treat disease." And he wrote the business plan with me, and that's how we got started ten years ago. So we've been living COVID, COVID, COVID for quite some time now. Tell us, you know, what do we really know about this virus? I like to think of there three main aspects that we know about just in broad categories. The structure of the of the virus, what does it physically look like? And then the life cycle of the virus. Viruses, by definition, infect cells and then co-op the machinery of our own cells to replicate and then get out of the cells and continue their life cycle. And so we know a lot about that. And then we know a lot about the genomes of these viruses. There's three primary surface proteins. And the most well-studied one, which you might have heard of, is called the, the spike protein. These spike proteins stick up on the outside of the virus and look like the top of a crown. That's why it's called coronavirus. And this protein is vital in terms of a target for drugs as well as um, our understanding because it uses these spike proteins to bind to lung cells, to a particular receptor called ACE2 receptor on the lung cells, and it allows the virus to get into the cells. Then we know a lot about the life cycle, which is once it get into the cells, it has to replicate and then get out back out of the cell. And at the same time, it has to um, kind of avoid the immune system as it goes. Why does it want to get out of the cell? It's in the cell and it commandeers the cell's manufacturing capacity to make copies of itself. Is that uh, each cell is limited by how many uh, as to how many copies it can make? And so the virus goes out and finds another replication factory cell? The way these viruses work is, it, you know, you, probably it starts out by infecting one cell. And then, yes, eventually it, it either it makes so many copies that it kills the cell, but by then it has to form the viral particles that it allows it to 
uh, float in your system and then infect other cells. It's a way of exponentially expanding and spreading as a virus. All viruses effectively do this. They infect cells, use that machinery to make many copies of themselves, and then somehow those copies have to get out and infect other cells. So what's, what is fundamentally different between this novel coronavirus and the common cold? It's an interesting question because in, in a lot of ways we don't we don't really know the answer and in some ways we, we do know the answer. So the common cold can be caused by a variety of different kinds of viruses, but about 25% of them are caused by coronaviruses. And it's four strains in particular that cause the, these 25% of the common cold. Its harms are fairly limited. First of all, it's a, more of an upper respiratory. This new coronavirus is more of a lower respiratory infection. It causes cough and breathing issues. We know that for the common cold, viruses that we do get some element of immunity after getting a cold for some period of time, but that it fades quite quickly, which is why you can get reinfected when you can get colds every year, right? These same strains of virus can continue to reinfect year after year. So that is something we really need to take to heart in terms of vaccine design. It might not be that we get long-lasting protection with these viruses, that for some reason the immune system doesn't amount a sufficient enough stable immune response to protect long-term, and that we might need to create a vaccine structure where we can boost on a regular basis. Many people get the virus and never know it, they, and they never have any symptoms. Other folks get it, and it knocks them on their back. Um, some of them have minor symptoms. Others get wind up in the hospital. And people with suppressed immune system, obese people, uh, diabetics, I think, and so forth, uh, have worst outcomes. But just looking at the differentiation in humans and their immune response, what causes that difference? That the really big difference in, in outcomes seems to be driven by the differences in, in immune health, right? People who are immune compromised in some way, whether they're a, a diabetic or on immunosuppressive drugs or are uh, quite old, the elderly's immune systems start breaking down over time. People who are younger and in good health um, are obviously doing far better. But then there's another factor on top of this, which... I think for from the point of view of, uh, of understanding evolution is going to be quite interesting. Every cell in your body presents little pieces of the virus to the immune system through these molecules called HLA molecules. And they're the most diverse molecules in, your, in, in the entire body. And every person effectively has a different set of these things. So basically, by construction, every single person presents the, the virus a little bit differently to its own immune system. And the whole, the, the dogma, the kind of evolutionary theory behind this is it's to protect our population so that even if a really bad, like let's say some huge pandemic like smallpox comes in and starts wiping out huge portions of our population, some subset of those people should do fine. Their immune system should be geared to fight it very, very well versus other people. So there's an inherent kind of genetic difference between how different people respond to viruses that's designed, in theory anyways, to protect our population against complete annihilation from a virus. And we're probably seeing this in action right now. People who are nominally equally healthy who are having quite disparate um, responses to this virus because some people are just genetically able to attack exactly the right part of the virus. It's not, if I understand this, it's not like where uh, evolution is producing some sort of super race of people with huge, fabulous immune systems. It's really that it diversifies the population 
And so there's always a segment of us that, that survives. And it could theoretically be that I come from a lineage of people who have survived various plagues over time, but boom, along comes novel coronavirus. And now I'm on the losing side of the equation. That's exactly right. This system is not is not designed to evolve towards having better and better immune systems. The point of this is just to create diversity across the population. Think of it as just random. You just want to create some huge randomness in response so that somebody's, no matter what shows up, somebody's in the tail that that's, does well. It's pretty clear that the immune system deteriorates over age. And so there's a lot of discussion. Well, since young kids uh, seem so immune to the, to the disease, um, maybe it's just fine if, if they all go back to school in the fall. But then along comes this, this strange thing. It's like Kawasaki disease where these kids are having strokes. What, what do we think? Do we know, have any idea what's going on there? This is an inflammatory disease. Kids just generally aren't having real issues. I mean, across, I mean, obviously there there are a few uh, a small subset that are having these having strokes. The vast majority are either asymptomatic or seem like they don't even get infected. And and one of the possibilities for this is that the receptor on the lung cells, this ACE2 receptor that the virus needs to enter, just isn't prevalent on lung cells for kids. It could be that some of the differences in how this infection works is what cell types are actually getting infected, and that be could be causing all sorts of strange effects that we are, are really struggling to understand. Hmm. My, my doctor tells me that I have a very strong immune system because I almost never get sick. Um, I don't think I've missed a day from work and I, since I can remember from being sick. And I'm not sure what I've done to deserve that. But are there things that, we, that people can do to, to uh, maximize the strength of their immune system, to maximize their resistance to this virus? There's never been a really great measure of immune health. It's actually a really shockingly hard thing to measure. Your immune system is such a complicated system. Is your immune system good at preventing you from getting sick in the first place? Is it good at, at clearing an infection once you have it? So there's all sorts of different aspects to what you mean by having a good immune system. And we've never really sunk our teeth into how do we measure immune health in a, in a kind of a, a robust way. Certainly we know when somebody's immune system is not working. The, the things that that are, I think, generally in this society are known to be bad for immune system, smoking, um, obesity, all, that causes inflammation, all of these bad behaviors we should stay away from. But I don't think we have a real silver bullet yet for what can make your immune system really good. There are some drugs that we've seen that can do some interesting things. There's a drug called um, IL-7, which seems to increase the diversity of your T cells, which which you know makes you look a little bit more like a a young kids, which seems to be quite strong relative to older people. So, but at this point, we just don't even have a way of measuring. You know, that's interesting because you have all these companies forming now to to these so-called anti-aging biotech companies are trying to figure out how to make us live for a thousand years, and I'm sure that people are going to be looking deeply into that. Yes, for sure. So yeah, I understand that, sadly, because of the tragic lethality of COVID-19, that's giving your company some data that it really couldn't get before. What are the medical community's experiences with, say, organ transplants and bone marrow? Unless you can challenge the system sufficiently to where you have a sufficiently high probably death rate, right? Because as I was saying, all those other properties are sort of, you know, are you good at, at, at avoiding disease? Are you good at clearing disease? At the end of the day, you would want to say person A died from this pathogen and person B did not. 
I mean, that's a definitive statement. And it's very rare that we're able to collect samples where enough people are, are actually dying to get a decent sample set together. We've done a lot of work on is, is actually the, the transplant setting where you reset the immune system completely. The people are quite sick. But oftentimes what actually ends up being the uh, cause of death of people who have transplants and so forth is that their immune system doesn't fully recover and that they die of infections. So there we've done some studies where we've really tried to get a handle on immune health and by looking at exactly the same thing, which is being able to distinguish how the immune system looks in, in the case of the patients who seem to do really well in response to pathogens after transplant versus who succumbed. And the same thing we're seeing here where the virus itself is a culprit. Well, I suppose if you took 100,000 people who were exposed to the virus and had different outcomes and you genetically sequenced those 100,000 people and then you ran computations to see what differences, we're not necessarily in a position to sequence all those patients, are we? We're seeing the heyday of high throughput sequencing like in action right now. I mean, there's there's been many, many thousands of viral strains that have been sequenced. We have a this immune race study that we've opened in collaboration with Microsoft and LabCorp. LabCorp's going uh, with a mobile phlebotomy unit to go collect samples from a thousand people. Um, and we have uh, multiple thousands more samples that have been sent to us. And we're sequencing the immune repertoire of all of these people. And with the idea being that we're going to be able to map out exactly which is a specific response, the specific cells, the T cells that are fighting the virus that cause, causes COVID-19. And so we'll be able to really see the exact immune response and how this interacts with the genetics of the virus in real time at a pretty large scale. And we have committed to making all this data public so that researchers and companies and health professionals across the world will, will be able to access the data and use it for development of vaccines and therapeutics, et cetera. And we're moving quite rapidly. We've already recruited of the thousand people in this immune race study. We've already recruited over 300 of them, and we should have data in June put up on our site. We expect to have um, the first semblance of our diagnostic signal in a matter of weeks. It's coming fast. You're working with Microsoft to develop a new kind of diagnostic test. So tell us about how your diagnostic is going to fill gaps in testing and help put America back to work. Sure. I think information is key here. There's two types of, of diagnostics that you've probably heard about. A PCR test, which is a throat or nasal swab. Um, and this is a, a point of care test, and it looks directly at the virus. They're looking for, for viral RNA. The second is a blood test. It's called a serology test. It's looking for antibodies that your system has built up against the virus. And we believe that there's a, a vital need for a third type of test, and that's what we're creating, where we look at the, the body's immune response directly to the virus using its, its cellular immune response or its T-cell response. So specifically, what we are developing will measure the T-cells specific to SARS-CoV-2. And these T-cells um, detect the disease early on and multiply to combat the infection. By, by creating a diagnostic looks at the T-cells, we're hoping to um, identify um, asymptomatic people 
and catch the disease potentially much earlier. These other tests aren't able to do is triage patients. So we expect that the people who have a strong immune response will do better than people who don't. And therefore, the people who aren't mounting a viable immune response really should be the people who, who need to go in the hospital. And if we had a really good test to tell you that, a molecular diagnostic that could just say, okay, you, you're you going to end up in the ICU, you better get in the hospital immediately versus your immune system's doing a good job, you're going to be okay. There's a big issue with serology, right? There's a massive false positives. The serology can confound people who had coronaviruses that cause the common cold with people who have the SARS-CoV-2, which is causing COVID-19. That's why, you know, some of these studies are coming out saying that 10 to 20% of everybody in New York has had COVID and 5% of everybody in Los Angeles. Maybe those numbers are right, but until we have a really good test to prove it, it's really hard to make good choices. And, and it also, if it doesn't work on a person by person level, you can't really use it to send people back to work. You might be false positive. You might actually have had that virus. It has to be really rock solid that you, you did have the virus and therefore you're protected. Maybe, right? We really don't know to what extent having had the virus and so called cleared the virus, indeed makes you protected against being reinfected, or if it does, for how long, right? We don't have a, a lot of evidence uh, one way or the other, um, from, but from everything we know about past pathogens, we expect at least some protection for some period of time. It might fade out over time. By the way, we can also assess this by looking at the immune response. If, you're, if your T-cell response remains elevated to, and you form long-term memory, while that memory is still there, you're, you're likely have at least some element of protection, right? And hopefully we'll have diagnostics that can actually measure whether that's persisting or going away. By memory, what you mean is your immune system detects the presence of a virus and it says, oh, I've seen this guy before. That's exactly right. And in fact, that's how all vaccines work, right? They trick your immune system into thinking they've seen the, the virus. The next time you, when you see the virus for real, you have this, this uh, standing army ready to attack it. And Are there specific cell numbers that we can measure? I think it's going to be a little bit challenging to do that for people who have never been infected before. But for people who have already been infected, we should be able to to follow directly. That's what adaptive does is we identify the T cells, the specific T cells that are fighting the virus. We can track them in long term memory. Do you persist or not with your ability to fight this virus? The serology tests, if measured correctly, should help as well. I think if you combine the, the T-cell and the antibodies together, you, we could probably get a pretty good measure of who, who's protected and who's not. So now we diagnose people, uh, and if we find that they uh, are relatively newly infected, what we want to do, obviously, is to be able to treat them. And you're working with Amgen to discover and develop some antibody therapies. There are a lot of companies uh, trying to do that. What's different about your approach? There's a couple strategies to go after this virus. The first is kind of repurposing drugs that have already been out there. You know, that's That has a, a speed advantage, although they're not specifically targeted towards the this particular virus, you know, their eff efficacy is going to be somewhat limited because they just weren't made for the right purpose. So that's the remdesivirs of the world and, and you know, to some extent, hydroxychloroquine, which might 
network at all. Then there's a, a set of groups that are basically co-opting the immune system uses to fight the virus directly with antibodies and trying to pick out the very, very best ones that can, that can neutralize the virus directly. And so uh, adaptive's advantage is really speed and scale. Every person makes a large number of antibodies specific for the virus. Um, let's say uh, 200 plus clones in each person, you know, and most people don't create good neutralizing antibodies at all. It's only this collection of all 200 together that do the work. So you, we're really looking for not this entire team of 200 to do the work. We're looking at the case where one sticks out by itself to do the work of, of the entire team. I mean, I grew up in Chicago, so we've been calling it the, the Michael Jordan of antibodies. We're looking for this superstar guy that, that's just vastly better than everyone else. In order to do that, you need to search across many, many different people, and you need to search extremely deeply within each person. So that's what adaptive strength is. And we're um, teamed up with Amgen, who's also has a, a great early discovery program. And so we've been really working together to form the strategy to find these very best antibodies. And then Amgen's um, committed to developing and then taking them through trials and commercializing them at a rapid pace. And they obviously have the uh, unbelievable horsepower to be able to do that. So how long might it take to bring both your diagnostic and your antibodies to market? You know, this is obviously the, the $64,000 question. We're moving at kind of uh, light speed, at least in terms of um, normal discovery. And so we expect that we'll have a signal for the diagnostics in a matter of weeks and then um, how fast we can commercialize it. Fortunately, we have the underlying robust technology to deliver the assay. So then it would be a, a regulatory question how quickly we can get um, approval to market the test. We were going to be delivering a our, our first antibody candidates to take through as a therapeutic in a matter of months. So this might be just too technical of a question, but it sort of intrigues me. We we, we use the language all of the time that the immune system sees the virus. So of course the, the immune system doesn't have eyes, it doesn't see anything, but it, it detects it and then it, it gravitates toward it. So is it possible in any way that someone like I could understand what you're saying to explain how that really happens? What we call the um, adaptive immune system, by the way, that's why we call our company Adaptive, has this really hard job of things come into our system that we've never seen before. So how do you set up a system that can identify pathogens that, that you've never seen before? We create tens to hundreds of millions of different receptor sequences with all different shapes and sizes. And we do that in such a way that no matter what comes into our system, at least one or more of those physically binds to the, the to parts of that pathogen. And when that happens, then a cascade starts that says, hey, I'm the receptor that found something foreign. Let's start an, a, an attack specifically based on that binding. So it's all binding based. So when we say identify C, what we really mean by C is the the T cell and B cell receptors, the things that we sequence in, in adaptive, specifically their have a biophysical interaction with the with parts of the virus themselves and and it's that key binding that what's known as when we say seize the virus what do we know about why it is that some kinds of vaccines protect us from certain kinds of diseases for decades and others not so long it's a great question and and so the immune system truly is a system and if you can engage more parts of that system 
um, you form a much more robust and long-lasting immune response, which is why vaccines like uh, the yellow fever vaccine, which is basically a live attenuated virus, it's not just a, a shell of a particle, it actually gets into your system and can replicate a little bit, but it's not supposed to cause an infection, but it's supposed to be replicating enough that it's, it causes a really robust response, not just to create antibodies, but also creates a T-cell response and various other immune cells are part of that response. And you can measure this directly. It's vaccines like that that tend to create um, really long-lasting, robust um, protection. The truth is, is that we can get protection from other kinds of vaccines for a very long time. It's a huge question in the field. The flu vaccines, the reason they don't last very long isn't because the vaccine's not good. It's because the virus itself mutates. And so the vaccine you created doesn't protect you against next year's flu. It's literally just a different virus, even though we're calling it the flu. So, and that's a big question with this virus coming up, right? Is that, is SARS-CoV-2 going to mutate? And is the vaccine we create today going to be viable for tomorrow? We don't know. So I've been serving for the last six years on a thing called the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. And we were warning five years ago that a pandemic was inevitable and we made all kinds of recommendations. But there are reason to believe that the next, it won't take another hundred years to come along. Um, we could have one literally any day. What do we need to be thinking about the next time this comes around so we'll, we'll be more ready and more well-armed to, to fight back? This is a great question. And we've gotten a hint from it in a weird way, which is that um, there's a global effort to fight um, computer viruses. It actually uses the same word, even though they're not viruses at all, right? And it, what it really takes is a, a global surveillance system and then an ability to act quickly to respond. So we really have a blueprint from this because our, our, our computer viral response is actually quite good. But what it's going to take is a worldwide surveillance system. But we also need to be looking at the um, novel immune responses that are popping up. In this case, it would have been pneumonia cases. There was there was a large set of pneumonia-like cases in Wuhan, surprisingly. Well, if we could couple that information together with, oh, yeah, and, you know, we were looking for spikes in immune response that weren't to anything we've ever seen before and potentially even having, in, in this case, it would have been looking at DNA from uh, spit or nasal swabs or something like that. We would have been able to piece this together very, very quickly. And then we need to be able to do something about it. Being able to track people is, is going to be one of the biggest defenses on this. So, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of ethical issues that get raised if we have this kind of if governments have the ability to track people all the time, that's that's that that's a potential totally different uh, can of worms. But but that would be you know very important for quickly eradicating and isolating and eradicating a new pandemic before it starts. Yeah, well, I, I'm sort of not one of the give me liberty or give me death folks on here. I'm sort of the take a little bit of my privacy and uh, and protect the planet. Well, thank you, sir. It's been uh, a great pleasure to, uh, uh, to learn what Adaptive is doing. Well, thank you very much. It was, it was really nice to be on the show. And uh, we're working very hard and we will continue to do so. So hopefully, um, hopefully we'll have some good news soon on uh, improved diagnostics and therapeutics and ways to treat the disease and maybe even protect against the next one. All right. That happens. I'm buying. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice or even better. If you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Biopod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of heroes and lab coats, 
please visit iambio.org. On our next episode, we're going to hear from an expert on the connection between human, animal, and environmental health. She's going to explain to you why the documentary Tiger King wasn't a reprieve from the pandemic, but a symbol of its cause. Learn how our disrespect for nature and wildlife paved the way to the deadly COVID scourge. And learn how governments must work together, not turn inward to prevent future pandemics. Bats don't have passports. That's our topic on next Monday's I Am Bio.